Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, welcome back to In The Pink. Thank you so much for your company in the last few weeks. How are you all doing? Um, It's been a strange time, hasn't it, under lockdown? And uh, the challenges of working from home, homeschooling. A lot of my friends have been on their own, completely on their own. And I think that is really tough. So um, hopefully we've been able to give you a bit of company, hear some uh, familiar voices. Uh, But do communicate with us, do let us know who you've enjoyed listening to, who you'd like to hear from. And don't forget that you can win those Bose headphones. And um, they're awesome, actually. I sometimes just sneak off either to the top of the house or to the bottom of the garden and um, put the headphones on and insist that I'm working really hard and actually just put on some nice music, take 10 minutes for myself. Bit naughty, isn't it? Can't believe I've just admitted that. My husband always listens to In The Pink. So, uh, yeah, busted me now, hasn't he? Okay, next up on the podcast is a man who had to wait nearly eight years between England call-ups but went on to be one of the best spin bowlers in the world. He also has the personality to match his audacious talent on the cricket pitch. So, for me, he's the perfect guest for In The Pink. Sit back, relax, enjoy the world according to Mr Graham Swan. Hello, Swanee. How lovely to see you. Hello, Nat. It's lovely to see you. And I do apologise. I'm sat in my car to escape the children. Um, There is a puppy in the house. It's carnage in there. So I think this is my only sanctity, my only... Only safe haven is this car. I love that you're having to escape to your car for any semblance of quiet. You've got three kids and a puppy. That's utter madness. It is at the time. Had I known what was about to happen, (laughs) perhaps the puppy wasn't the best idea. In fact, I take that back. It's the best idea ever. Because if you ever run out of ideas as a parent, um, oh, who wants to play with the puppy? Shut them in the garden. (laughs) Lovely. And it's uh, it's crazy for you, really, to be spending this much time at home. You're not used to that. I mean, from your cricketing, no. you've gone from from all to nothing in terms of uh, in terms of being away from them all. But it's, it's, I suppose it's lovely in a way, isn't it? It is. I mean, the difference between playing cricket. I mean, when I was playing for England, all and it is an all year round thing. So there was one year, I think it was 2011, when I sat down at the end of the year. And worked out I'd spent 42 nights in my own bed in the entire year. Um, yeah. Because believe it or not, 
everyone says, oh, it must be hard in the winter when you're away. I used to find the winter was the easiest thing because you'd go away, you're with all your mates, you're in five-star hotels, and there's a, a definite date. Your families are coming out on this date. You look forward to it. When you're in England, um, you have to travel like an hour down the road to, say, Birmingham for me. You're not allowed home each day in between. You can't just nip off home spend the night during a test match so that becomes really hard because the kids are like well, why, why can't you just come and see us daddy um yeah. you say well because strict england curfews you know we're going to be ready to bowl against bangladesh tomorrow um of course so, you would always adhere to i'm sure no i only broke them once or twice and then uh, i nearly missed start time one day um because of a traffic accident so i thought i better not do that again i can't believe i'm saying this i'm getting myself into no end of trouble i was a down the line behavior boy I I read somewhere that in your early England days, you overslept. Yes, yes. That was my first England tour as a 19-year-old. I mean, I had a whale of a time on that tour, perhaps not the most professional attitude. I I, I look back with a lot of, um, well, not regret, actually, a lot of of happiness on that tour because Phil Tufnell was my mentor. Um, it did cost me eight years of playing for England because I probably listened to Phil a little bit too much. Um, but I absolutely adore Phil Tufnell and I work with him now on TMS. He's one of the best blokes I've ever met. But at the time, um, uh, being the other the young spinner coming in, I probably needed someone with a bit more discipline um, than Phil had um, because, let's face it, I'm fairly easily led. Just going back to that, uh, it was kind of crazy because you, you got your one day call up and then waited, yeah. what, as you say, nearly eight years to, to yeah. play for the, the full test side. Did, did you, had you given up on playing test cricket for your country? Yeah, I suppose I had because, you know, I was picked. First and foremost, I was picked because um, the, the, the papers, the, the media in England used to be a very, very sort of heavy lobbying uh, lobbyist activity because they could pick the team and they would complain that England had just gone bottom in the world at the test rankings and new coaches coming in there was a massive clamour for new faces for youngsters um, I'd just I'd been on a under 19 tour where we'd won the World Cup in South Africa I'd been on an A tour and done well um, I was nowhere near good enough to play for England at that point uh, but I was picked because my face fit <laughs> can you believe it or not um, and, and I was put in the team. Uh, but I then went to South Africa. I was basically sharing a dressing room with people who, whose posters were still on my bedroom wall oh. um, from playing cricket as a kid, who didn't know who the hell I was. Uh, the captain didn't rate me one, one bit whatsoever. He was a very strict, sort of, didn't like the, the lighter side of, of touring life as much as I did, let's say that, NASA. Um, and I, I, I adore Nasser saying these days. I call him Chuckles whenever I see him. He's, he's yet to come around to liking me, I think. But um, <laughs> it was, I, I shouldn't have been on that tour. But I went out with gusto and I really enjoyed the tour, possibly off the field a bit too much. Um, but I was, in all truth, you know, I was like a, um, you know, a scared little soldier. I didn't want to be picked because I knew I wasn't good enough or didn't, I didn't believe I was good enough. And... Uh, after that trip, it, was, it became apparent that Duncan Fletcher, the coach, would never pick me. He was not a fan of mine whatsoever. And I did. I went back into county cricket. Um, I played a few more years at Northampton, five more years at Northamptonshire, then moved to Nottinghamshire. I realised when I moved to Notts that I was the best spin bowler in the country. Because um, I'd, I'd, I'd completely written off playing for England. I'd put it out of my mind. But all of a sudden, when people like Stephen Fleming and David Hussey are saying, 
you are so much better than everyone else. Come on, apply yourself, get back in. And I'd say, well, there's no point applying myself to get back in. I'll apply myself because I want to win things for knots now. Um, and I'll never play for England. And I had written it off. And then the stars aligned. Duncan Fletcher got the boots. Andy Flower came in. No, not Andy Flower. Peter Moores came in. And I'd already done well against Sussex, who Peter was the coach against. And then things started to line up and I got back in that way. So And things did happen relatively quickly from that point onwards, didn't they? Because 2009 was a big year. 2010, massive year. ECB cricketer yeah. year. So it was, I mean, you say stars aligned, but you were absolutely ready to grab that opportunity with both hands. Yeah, to do excuse me, um, this is one thing I have. I have horrific hay fever. And because of the sun coming out now, I've been mowing the lawn three times a day to get out of the house. Uh, <laughs> a cricketer with hay fever is not ideal. I, I, I appreciate that, but I just want to explain my headiness. Um, yeah, it, was, it did go so well. I mean, I got into the team. I did well on my debut. I got two wickets in the first over. And believe it or not, that was the second that I realised that I, I sort of cracked the secret to test cricket that it is not the big magical mystical game that you make it out to be that everyone makes it out to be before you've played it you think you have to bowl the best deliveries of your life to take a wicket you think that you know these players are almost demigods and you don't belong with them in my first over I got um, two wickets and one of them was Raul Dravid who I'd bowled at before and simply considered the best batsman who'd ever walked the planet he was just in counter cricket, he was impossible to bowl at. He was a very humble bloke, but just too good and toyed with you. And then in test match cricket, he walked out to bat with eyes like dustbin lids because the pressure of the whole situation um, was clearly getting to him. And he played the situation rather than um, the guy bowling his first over in test cricket who had nothing to lose. So I just clocked it then. It's the same game. The pitch is the same length. The ball's the same weight. Um, it's all in your head. In test cricket, I promise you, is 99% in your head if you're good enough to get there you're good enough to do well the people who clock that and realize hang on it's actually easier if you're a batsman the wickets are better if you're a spin bowler the wickets deteriorate more because there's an extra day to play on it um, and if you believe or convince yourself that you're good enough or better than the bloke at the other end he will start to believe it and I was very lucky in that respect I think so maybe you needed those extra few years to get to that point mentally yeah, I'll tell you what those extra years did. Um, they made sure that I didn't ever worry about my technique, that I knew I could bowl by then. I'd, I'd had another, they say the 10,000 hours practice thing to be um, an expert in your field. I'd had that plus, you know, another 10,000 playing counter cricket because we play an awful lot of cricket, counter cricket. And I was just, I knew my game inside out. I didn't ever worry about technically whether this would go wrong, that would go wrong. And there's two types of bowling. There's one where you run up, and you're worried about whether the ball will land in the right place and whether your action's right, whether your rhythm's there and all your angles align. And the other type of bowling is forgetting all about that and just focusing 100% on how I'm getting this bloke out. And as soon as your technique takes care of itself, that's all you focus on. I'm going to get this guy out, right, how do I do it? Um, and I was lucky enough, those extra years in the wilderness, so to speak, got me to a point where that's all I thought about, how I'm going to get this guy out. Nothing can prepare you for walking out to that cauldron of noise, though, at somewhere like Lords or the Oval, and 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 absorbing the pressure from the fans. I mean, yeah, I tell you what, though, once you've played for for ten years in front of barely any spectators, <laughs> and really desperately looked forward to the big semi-final or something where there was a lot of people, and my character, my ego, did dictated that I had to be 
I like being in a pressure, pressure situation. I liked having a lot of noise, a lot of response. Um, every game you play for England is packed out in England. And it's honestly, it is absolutely exhilarating and you want more and more of it. I do have a very addictive personality. So the second I took a wicket you know, in England, in the ashes and felt that rush of adrenaline, I just thought, I want that. I want so much more of this. It's ridiculous. So is, so, that, is that the yeah. showman in you? Is that getting that immediate reaction, response from the crowd to, to something that you've done that's great? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, since doing that, I've, I've been the lead string in a band. I've, been, I've done one-man stages or two-man stage shows with Henry Blofeld, desperate to try and recreate that sort of surge of adrenaline when, you know, immediately you say something and people laugh or you sing and people sing back at you. It is very close. Nothing will ever compare to taking a wicket for your country at Lords, and when you do that there's a fraction of a second where you know you've got the wicket and no one else in the world does you know it's just all falling into place you see it before everyone else realizes and then there's this honestly it's probably it feels like three or four seconds when you're there but it's probably in real terms half a second where you're waiting for that noise for that rush to come over the ground and you sort of set yourself and I, every wicket I've ever taken, I've watched it, a big smile arrives on my face just before that rush hits me. And it's like, yes, you beauty. Very selfish, but it's awesome. I don't think it is selfish. I do think it's interesting, though, that there is that moment of pure individual brilliance within a team sport. And, and with that, the individuality comes a lot of personal pressure, which I know a lot of cricketers have struggled with because when you're out there on your own, whether it's bowling or batting, you are on your own, even though yeah. you're part of a bigger team. Um, did you feel that you thrive more within the tight team environment or an individual within it? Because that's the other thing I really noticed, but we'll come on to later is, um, what an eclectic mix of individuals you were over those yeah. few years. But anyway, start with addressing whether you felt like more of an individual or a team player. Well, I was definitely an individual in the fact that I didn't like the laws and the, and the rules that were put down. I'd, I'd adhere to them, stick to them, but the anti-establishment in me is always saying, like, you're not doing it right. We could do it better. We could do it better. So I was quite vociferous in that point. I'd have been a dreadful captain because I'd have been very much it's my way or the highway. But I was a very good lieutenant because I, I desperately wanted the team to do well all the time. But the one thing I realised fairly early on was the players that I gravitated towards within the change room were Jimmy Anderson and Alistair Cook, Stuart Broad, who were very similar in the fact that they never showed any sort of discernible nerves or, or worry, you know, they didn't have the stress in their faces if it was their time, time to shine. So on the fourth or fifth day, when it's down to me to win the game as a spin bowler, I'd love that. I'd revel in it. Of course you feel extra height and nerves, but I wanted to be man of the match. I'd stand in front of the mirror before I go out and I'd look at myself and say, in six hours time, you are going to be, you know, the man of the match. Everyone is going to be screaming your name, singing your name. Your mum's going to be so proud. I use that all the time. Mavis is going to be over the moon. She's going to be on the phone. Hey, I can't believe it, Lord. Well done. But I'd use that and I'd want to be the man of the moment. And I think everyone I knew who did that, you, you wouldn't say that to anyone, but deep within you who felt that, they were the ones who more often than not would do it. And I think you see that in most sports, that the people who have a quiet confidence, people always say it's a quiet confidence about them, are the ones who desperately inside are going, I want this. I want to be, I want the pressure. 
I want to be the man who grabs the ball. I want to dictate this game. I want to win it. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose within the team sport, I wanted to be um, the main man all the time. I wanted, you know, the plaudits. I wanted to be known as, oh, wow, England is so lucky to have him. That's in my own head. That's what I'd say to myself all the time. In reality, you can't do it without your teammates, of course. But we all heard those boring as hell interviews that every sports team player gives now and goes, you know, well, without my teammates, it wouldn't have been possible. Yes, we know that, but we don't care about that. This is PC stuff. Forget about that. How do you feel about this? Yeah, I feel great, but I've got to say thank you to my captain. No, you don't. We're asking how you feel. This must have been amazing. Your grand's in the crowd. Tell me how it feels that you've just in your grand watch. Stuff like that. So I always decided that, yeah, it's a given that your teammates are there for you and you're winning it for your teammates. But enjoy it. It's your career. It's your life. Get that Man of the Match award. Your mates are there to celebrate it with you. When they get it, be all over them like a rash. It's brilliant. It's the greatest job in the world if you treat it like that. But as with all team sports, there isn't room for massive individual egos. And that was ultimately what undermined that incredible side that you were number one in the world in what 2011 and then it all seemed yeah. to unravel I always find it really interesting to see uh, the sort of peaks and troughs in cricket that you can be number one that you can drop to six you can climb back up again yeah. your talent doesn't go anywhere but as a collective yeah. unit something happens and and it seemed um certainly from the outside looking in that there were uh, discernible cliques that were ultimately undermining the team work ethic is that, is that fair? No, it's not. There weren't discernible clicks. I know where you're going down. No, um, I'm not. I'm not. We, we're a team. We, we're a team. We got to number one in the world. Um, and, you know, within a team, there's always going to be individuals. 99% of that team um, were very much in it for the team as well. Um, what we, had, we ended up having with Kevin was a situation where you know, he'd been captain before. He definitely didn't like... Um, establishment and rules much like me we were actually very similar in many ways me and Kev but we actually got on professionally better than most other people because we were very honest with each other we openly disliked each other but we wanted each other in the team I wanted a Kevin Peterson who was scoring runs and playing well because he was simply one of the best in the world um, in the team there were there were times when it was all exterior things like the, the texting with Andrew Strauss and the subsequent when you get to a point where you're having team meetings to discuss what we're going to do about these text messages that have been sent that the player is saying I did not send these it's complete lies and then subsequently you know he sent them and then you said well I did send them because they're my mates and stuff like that that doesn't help things in the slightest but the team didn't fall apart until we got to Australia in 2013 after just winning the Ashes at home when we simply weren't good enough. We got blown away by Mitchell Johnson. No, no two ways about it. Who bowled very, very fast left arm bounces that we weren't prepared for. We didn't have a reply for. Um, and so when people talk about, oh, this and that and the cracks there, every, every team you ever see, there, there's never the perfect 15 people, 15 on about rugby, perfect 11 players on there where the cracks aren't being papered over at some point. Mm. There's always a weak link within a team people found the weak link within our team and, and exposed it, ultimately. Um, you know, and it's, it was no one's fault that it happened. It's, if you're winning, everyone's a genius and everyone's happy. If you're losing, things fall apart. And unfortunately, that's what happened. 
Okay, time for Bose's handy tips about how we can all cope a bit better over the next few weeks and potentially months um, under lockdown. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? We just don't know how long this is going to last. And that lack of control over our own lives can let anxiety creep in. But hopefully, if we can all follow these little nuggets of advice, it may just help. Okay, first of all, take time for yourself to stay centred and sane. Number two, seize moments of calm. They may be few and far between, but they are out there. You just need to grab them with both hands. Number three, find your sanctuary away from the chaos. Now, if like me, your whole house is chaotic, then that might be hard. But there must be a little corner somewhere where you can take yourself off and just have a moment or two. Because remember, timeouts aren't just for kids. It's really important to take a little me time because it can go a long way. I know that sounds a bit selfish because I always feel guilty if I go off and read a book or listen to some music or have a bath, all three at the same time. But I think and hope that we all come back to our jobs in the house with the kids, with our family, as better mothers, better partners, more productive, if we have taken a bit of time out. Cabin fever is real. So one way to smash that oppressive feeling is to learn something new. Take up a new hobby, for example. Don't resist and fight the new norm. Embrace it. Shape it to suit you. For example, you could move rooms, change the layout at your home, create a new space dedicated to a new hobby. Make working for home work for you. Don't be afraid of the silence if indeed it exists at any point during your day, it can be truly golden after all. Try to block out unhelpful noise and that will also reduce your anxiety. It's not where you work, it's how you work. So make it work for you with a little bit of help from Bose. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. And then you retired in 2013. Uh, still in the middle of an ashes series i didn't really get that was that was that because of injury or was that because you were just mentally checking out or you checked out uh, no mentally i've not checked out yet i still want to be playing um i got to the point where i, I couldn't bowl i couldn't feel my fingers um two balls and over i'd bowl i didn't know where the ball was going um that was my own stupid fault looking back at the end of the 2013 ashes in england playing at the Oval, I'd just taken the wicket that meant I was going to be top wicket taker in the Ashes. I was very happy with that. Selfishly, I wanted that. Um, and we went out to bat. Alistair Cook was batting. I had to go off into the gym, believe it or not, because I'd had the third of my elbow operations at the start of that summer. I had a weights regime that I had to do daily. Throughout that summer, I'd realised my arm was getting worse and worse. As I did these um, tricep sort of dips behind my back with the weight, I heard a huge clang on the floor didn't know what it was it was the weight that had fallen out of my hand and I didn't realize because it was completely numb rather than go shit I need to sort this out now I went you know what six weeks till we go to Australia it'll be fine it'll be all right on the night I really want to get back out there and win a fourth ashes very selfishly um, I may add um, and it was possibly the worst decision I've ever made because when I got to Australia it hadn't improved one bit I was saying to Cookie before the first game, so look, I'm really struggling here, mate. I need to play at Perth in the Warren game to 
to see if my arm's all right. No, but I, was, I wasn't even honest with you. I was going to see whether I can bowl well here because I didn't bowl well here last time. And it was like, no, we need to use this game for the seam bowlers as like a bowl off. And rather than just be honest and come out with it, say, look, I'm fucked here. Sorry, mate. I didn't. Um, and that's the, the, my major regret is that I didn't do that. And it took, this was when all the stuff off the field was happening. The, mm. Believe it or not, the team did not know about Alistair Cook and, and Andy Flower kept everything so close to their chest that we had no idea of all the dis, you know, disillusionment within Kevin's camp and, and, and their disillusionment with him and what was going on. He just said, look, I desperately need my mates and my senior players around me. I need that at the minute. Who said that, sorry? Uh, that was Alistair Cook saying that. Did he? Yeah. Uh, so you put a pressure to go on that tour? No, no not to go on the tour because I felt, you know, to play. And, and after the second test, I realised I could not, I couldn't bowl. I was playing on a wicket that was very spinner friendly and I was an embarrassment. I didn't know where the ball was going. I was a weak link. And so before the Perth test, I said, mate, I'm done. I can't, I can't do the job you want me to. And he pleaded with me basically to play. So, look, I really need my mates and my senior players here. And so, and that turned out to be my last game. And that was that was the worst feeling ever because mm. you're doing the job you've always wanted to do. You're living your boyhood dream, and it's gone sour. I mean, more sour than you could possibly hope. And you know that there's no way out of this easily. You know that it's going to get spun, and you're going to be an absolute pariah. And I had to just go. You know what? It's my fault for being there. That's going to happen. And so it did. But you know, people who said, like, even there when you're saying, you know, was it injury or did you mentally check out? I was very upfront and very open with it. I said, my arm cannot cope with bowling test cricket. That wasn't relayed by our media because they were looking for scapegoats for reasons rather than everyone being honest and saying, look, we just didn't know how to play 90 mile an hour fucking left arm bouncers. But, you know, honesty doesn't always, honesty never permeates within a losing team. That's why they're losing. Honesty permeates within a winning team or a very successful team who just turn around and, you know, if there's ever an excuse, go, no bullshit, that's an excuse. Knock it on the head. Mm. But at that point, it was excuse after excuse after excuse from everybody. And that was, that was ultimately the reason the team fell apart. It wasn't to do with Kevin or to do with Cookie or Andy Flower. It's the fact that there was so little honesty left in that team, personally, within each player. Um, I think, even looking back now, if 16 players on that tour could stand up and say, I did everything possible, you know, for, for myself and my country, then they're, they're all full of bullshit. How did you get to that point? Well, that's just it. it, it it's uh, probably a perfect storm. It just builds up. When we went on that tour, we just won at home. People were lauding us. We were great. We started getting absolutely hammered and uh, the wheels fell off. When you're away from home on a long tour... When the wheels fall off, the cart falls apart very quickly. You can cover the cracks at home because you've got a big pool of people to pick from. You're not the focus of attention. When you're up in the middle of the night for English fans who are staying up, they wake up in the morning, you're the first thing on the news, then it all gets blown out of proportion. And it was blown out of proportion. Uh, we got fucking hammered by a team who, by Mitchell Johnson, basically. How painful is it for you, kind of emotionally, to have finished what was a brilliant career internationally at that sort of horrible low where it was not just your body that was giving up around you. It was all the other negativity swilling around. You know what? It, it, it probably was harder than I'll ever let on, but I knew it was coming. And 
I've always had this thing in my head that the press I'd use as catharsis. And don't get me wrong, the guys who write in the cricket press, 99% of them are very decent blokes. But you know that it's going to get spun, that certain editors are out there to nobble you. Um, and I, I accepted it. And one easy way for me to deal with it was if people who read a certain newspaper, I could tell them because they're the ones who always say, you quit on your team, you leg. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. At home because I know exactly which paper that was. And I refer to that paper in less than glowing terms these days. It's a tabloid. It's not got a red top. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's unhealthy, but I'd always think if people are stupid enough to read that paper, I don't give a shit. I don't care what they think. I would never have a conversation with that person in a pub. So why should I care what they think now? That was my way of dealing with it all. But to go back to that question, yeah, it's disappointing, but I think to dwell on the, the way it finished rather than the five unbelievable years of absolute happiness that I had would be the most English thing in the world and I refuse to be traditionally English about everything because it is just the wrong way to go about team sports no matter who we are what we do we'll never be a team culture who celebrates like the the, the team as say Americans do watch an American football game watch the clamour watch a college football game in America where the, the whole place is like riveted behind that team no negative press woo USA yeah oh my god Dolphins woo Cowboys with us it's like hey, well done you're at 100 it'll be tricky tomorrow though I'm like Jesus Christ lass, come on so I've always been trying try and be anti-English with everything mm. as in I love being English and I love the way we go about it but I hate the way detest the way we put people on pedestals and desperately try and knock them down. And we do it as a nation. We're a pessimistic nation on the whole. 
But there's certain times when things are going well, when the whole country feels amazing and great. And we don't realize how good that feels and how positive that is for everybody. And we focus on bad things immediately as soon as they come along and jump on them rather than sweep them under the carpet. So, um, so yeah, I, I've always been like that. If, if you focus on the, the negatives rather than the positives, then you probably get what you deserve in the end. I think our, our nation's morale has been tested more than ever at the moment. And I'm hoping, it's quite interesting, I posted a video yesterday on Instagram, which was talking about the positives <laughs> that might just emerge from coronavirus rather than the negatives. And yes. actually, I have to say, 70, 80% of people that watched it were kind of heartened and motivated by it. But there were still 30% that was like, how the hell can you be saying there's anything positive here? But you I know, know. That's it. How, can, how can there be? How, yeah. What is the point of that 30%? That's my whole point. No, yeah, you're so right. It is a positive thing. Yeah. Don't, I, don't, I don't want to be a part of that thing. So I'll never allow myself to get drawn into it. And we all have grumpy days and grouchy days. I had one yesterday. I went to Asda at 7pm to get this shot that we desperately need for these three kids. And the little lines on the, on the floor that I was following and staying my two metres distance, anyone breaking them, I wanted to rip their heads off at that point. Thinking, why are you doing that? Are you doing that to be like, bullshit are you doing it because you don't agree with it or you're doing it because you're thick as two short planks <laughs> and my way of coping with it was they're thick as two short planks they don't realize what they're doing therefore don't get angry feel sorry for them don't get angry with them you know it's so true because you do learn a lot about uh, yourselves and each other at times like this i was walking along the river the towpath by the river near our house and i had willow on my shoulders she's only three and she was tired and i was just carrying her on my shoulders and we we're keeping our two meter distance and yeah. but i didn't want to go next to the river because there's no fence there it's just a yeah. direct drop down to the river and you're carrying a three-year-old and i'm carrying a three-year-old and bikes are like whizzing past me quite quickly i'm like jerking out so i walk to the other side of the path and i'm just skirting along the grass's edge this woman i kid you not puts her arms out like this stop and i said oh my god what and she said respect the rule that you are to walk on the left not the right do you not know the rule <laughs> i explained my situation of carrying said three-year-old and being near to the water's edge and bicycles and so on she said right as long as you know the rules and i'm like my <laughs> god what is happening well, I, I mean i don't i don't know whether that's just a local colloquialism to to the london area to, <laughs> to the west london area because Walking on the left is kind of a given because we drive on the left, but common fucking sense comes into it. And I'm sorry for swearing there. Now I'm with you. She had no, she had no reason to be anything but positive. Step to the other side, a knowing look. You've got a baby on your shoulders. You're near water. I mean, that's just common sense. So exactly. she is in that 30 percent. You really need to cheer up. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm absolutely loving the fact that so many people are finding the positive and finding something good to come out of it if, if society if this country can emerge saying the wonder of the nhs and the wonder of actually doing things for the good of everyone else rather than being a selfish prick then we're all going to benefit and it's all going to be awesome here 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 yeah let's just talk back on your glory days again because that's quite fun um i'm no, really interested in you know you were talking about uh bowling to rahul dravid and and these like like heroes of yours that you're playing against yeah. this is such a massive rivalry with australia and some legends of the game playing 
for Australia at the time. What is the camaraderie like? Because I want to come on to sledging in a minute, but what is yeah. the camaraderie like? What is the sort of mutual respect like between you and, say, the likes of Shane Warne, Ricky Ponton, Glenn McGrath? Would you have a beer together afterwards or do you have to keep that intensity so that you're more competitive, you have a competitive edge over them when you're playing? No, um, one of the biggest myths about cricket, and this is perpetuated within the media, there's this massive hatred between England and Australia. That is rubbish. Categorically states now, bullshit between the players. Sledging does not exist. The higher up in the game you go, the higher the levels you go, the less sledging, the less animosity there is. Club cricket on a Saturday, um, if I ever go and watch it, I'm disgusted at the level of it because they watch TV and they believe that that's what professionals do county cricket there's very little sledging international cricket hardly any there'll be a flashpoint in a game where say someone will nick it behind get you know not be given out or there'll be a flashpoint everyone calls each other a wanker for two hours and then it disappears there's not this clever you know after dinner speaking storytelling so don't believe it don't perpetuate the myth because the only person i've heard who people who i've heard who desperately try and do that are the guys who come into the team They've been brought up in a system that believes that there's all this legend and they start straight away. They quickly become very quiet because they realise that the legends of the game, people like Ricky Ponting, are not doing it. They don't need to do it. And like the odd flashpoint here or there, players aren't phased by it, but the press and everyone leaps on it. So sledging is yeah. not a big part of the game. There's but no more sledging. It can be funny though, can't it? I mean, it can be brilliant. The, like, if it's decent stuff. It can, I, I love the it one. Can be very fun. It can be very funny, like the stuff that you hear at afternoon speeches. That is, that is does it never really happened. It's been it's been honed and it's been worked on to be funny. So please, I, I, I this is where I hate bursting bubbles. In the middle of the cricket, I didn't hear one thing that genuinely made me laugh on a cricket field. I've heard plenty that apparently happened and said this and that, and everyone corroborates the story. But I've I've heard stuff that supposedly happened within a game I'm playing, and I think. Well, that's bollocks. That never happened. <laughs> oh, that's so disappointing. I like the one where the opposition fans call the player over for their autograph, and when they get when he gets to them, they're just flipping the bird. Yeah, see, I've never seen that happen. Damn it! I think it's quite funny. Yeah. Okay, but back, I'll do it to you one day, Matt. Yeah, back to camaraderie and the and the the respect that you have for these these players. Who do you think um, the the best player? is that you've ever played against? Well, quite quite simply, the best I ever bowled at was Brian Lara. I was nine. Oh, I lost you then. Quite simply too good. Yeah, Brian Lara for me. Um, but I only played him when I was 19, 20 for Northampton Sugars Warwickshire. He was incredible. Uh, Test-wise, I, I always thought Jack Callis was an incredible batsman. Just had a, you know, dead straight poker face all the time. Just I got him out once in probably 15 times a try. And I think he was more surprised than I was. Um, it, it, was just, it was brilliant. But there, there's so many, some players are brilliant on one day and crap on the next. And it's all to do with that, the way you wake up, the, the way you're feeling mentally, whether the pitch suits you rather than the bowler. So it's very difficult to say this player, that, that player. I mean, I've seen, I've played against Sachin Tendulkar playing the most sublime innings of his life um, at Chennai in my first test match to, to win the game for India but I've also played against Sachin where um, he looked like a you know, a little lost lamb so uh, Hashim Amla I had a winter in South Africa where I got him out a couple of times and didn't think he was that good a player he came to England the next year 
Uh, he was clean shaven when we started this summer. When we got him out, eventually he had a, a foot long beard. I mean, it was ridiculous. So it, it's hard to say who the best or whatever. Um, I, I prefer to go on at any one time when they were on song who made the most impact. So I'd say with the ball, Mitchell Johnson in that Ashes series, because it was just brilliant. I really like Mitchell. He's a great bloke. He makes me laugh a lot. And he just, he, he simplified bowling. He ran up and hurled rocks, basically. He bowled like a Neanderthal would. He ran up and hurled the thing down as hard as he could, either hit the stumps or hit you on the head, and it worked. <laughs> uh, but it, it, he won an Ashes for his series, for his country. Um, and then I've, I've seen some sublime knocks as well. But probably consistently Jack Callis or Mike Hussey for Australia as well. He's a good mate of mine and he'd never forgive me if I didn't say Mike Hussey. Hello, Mr. Cricket. I, uh, I've thought of a, an example where sledging was positive. When Joe Root responded to the homophobic slur and he didn't know that the stumps, the stump mic had pick him, picked him up and he actually defended. He suddenly became like a legend in the gay world. Like, uh, yeah, remember that? Well, you know that's that's a case where someone's trying to upset a player by throwing a gay slur at him. If the very fact that the whole country doesn't turn on that bloke who said it and say you're a disgrace, I mean, if they're if the cricket board in that occasion had singled that player out and said you're not welcome, you're not welcome as a, an ambassador for our country, an ambassador for professional sport, get the hell out of Dodge. Imagine if they'd done that. Imagine, like, say, if somebody did a racist slur like that, caught yeah, and they'd be kicked out of the game. Say, yeah. if somebody did a homophobe one. So the fact that Joe Root became like a, a martyr for, for, you know, the gay GLBT community is actually missing the point. That was a chance for for a cricket board to go. You know what? We're disgusted by that. You're out. Don't get who you are. How good you are. You're gone. That is a it had saved a lot of. I tell you what, in the long run, it had saved a certain player a lot of embarrassment with sandpaper and stuff like that. In the pink and bows, really want to help during this lockdown. Now, whether we can or not is another question, but we can try, and we're going to do that by giving away some more Bose noise cancelling headphones. To win them, just share mini anecdotes from your time in lockdown and give us some feedback on this series. Always put in the hashtag Bose and tag in a couple of mates to do the same and you never know those headphones could be yours. Good luck, stay safe and stay connected. Okay, let's talk a bit more about adjusting to life after cricket. You you spoke um, so well earlier in the podcast about the adrenaline rush that you got from playing for your country. Have you been able to recreate this? And I'm thinking strictly 2018. Yes. Um, well, one of the reasons I, I said yes to strictly was exactly that. Missing that adrenaline rush. It's like a hole in your life. Um, that you, you know, I, I think a lot of sportsmen really struggle from that. Um, missing that they say they call it the dressing room bunch and everything but for me it was definitely that that fear that pit of your stomach and um, fear of of you know having to perform all the time um and so I thought this would recreate it it did but I found very differently because like I said earlier when I used to go and put my England kit on before a day's play stare in the mirror and say you are going to be man of the match thinking six hours time the world is going to like your country's going to lord you and you're going to be feel incredible and it would work because I knew I was good enough to do it I, I was one of the best spinners in the world I'd got you know the, the performances behind me to, so my confidence was there I tried doing that in Strictly the first week 
and it failed miserably because I didn't have anything like the ability or, or the practice behind me to know that I wouldn't have to worry about technique. I wouldn't have to uh, just let it flow. I was constantly thinking, don't let people down. Don't make an idiot of yourself. Don't make Osi Mabuse kill you afterwards because you've forgotten her steps. It was, um, it was an incredible experience. I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, it really was incredible. But um, the fact that it's a game show rather than a sport, so it's not a level playing field. Um, you know, you, you, you're, you're dancing against people who have way more experience um, and can do it, you know, with their eyes closed. Um, so it is a game show. It's not, a, it's not the, the level playing field that sport is to you. And as a result, um, it was frightening. It was the most frightening thing I've ever done. But again... When things went well, when a dance went well, um, and you do get that same feeling, that, that roar of sort of appreciation, satisfaction, I suppose it is, for the week where it's the first time I've genuinely worried about cocking up rather than, you know, I, I was always very phlegmatic with cricket. Like if, if it doesn't go well, you know, I know I'm good enough, I'll bounce back, I've got tomorrow. With dance, it's like, well, you know, let's face it. If I don't get this right, if I make an arse of myself, dress like this, you know, it's a lot to live down sort of thing. So it was brilliant on one hand, but it was gut-wrenchingly frightening on the other. But I wouldn't change it for the world. I've got so many positives out of it. Um, but th th there are times doing that when you genuinely look at yourself in the mirror and go, what am I doing? <laughs> but I'm glad I did it. I I'm really glad I did it. Did you get a buzz from going out of your comfort zone or was that kind of constant sick feeling just swilling around the pit of your stomach? Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's, it's strange because each week's different because you do a different dance. Um, certain dances you do and you can just do them. You know, I always had what I found out was called musicality, very good musicality. So I can dance to the beat and I know what's coming. Um, but some dances, when it's, I'd never realised how technical and how difficult some of the movements would be. Um, the, the worst thing I ever did early on, when I got OT as my partner, who's now one of my best friends, she's an absolute hoop, she's a brilliant human being. But she said to me, um, what sort of coach do you want me to be? And I said, look, I'm a professional sportsman. I do not want false praise. I don't want you blowing smoke up my ass. It's not warranted. You know, you, you, you tell me how to do something. You let me try and learn it. If I can't, we'd knock it on the head. But I will, you know, um, it's the worst thing I ever said. Don't give me false praise. After two days, I was thinking, please say something nice. Please, anything. <laughs> because, I mean, some of the dances, you know, you have to, when you're from a sports dress room, it's all about, you know, um, you take it for granted that your movements and the way you play the game, they're yours. You don't think about them. All of a sudden, you have to conform. You have to move. And let's face it, a lot of the, the, the male roles in dancing very uber camp, really camping it up. That doesn't sit well in the sports dressing room. And as soon as you start thinking, God, are my mates going to take the mickey out of me for this? That starts to like then go, it inhibits your movements and everything. Um, and it's just... You it can feels, handle that. You can but, handle but, but yeah, but it feels so alien. And like when you're doing it, like actually committing to it and really, really going for it. Um, that took a couple of weeks to really get into. And I'm actually shocked when I look back at my very first week dressed in like a cream with uh, doing a cricket uh, samba. Um, I'm shocked at how much I could actually get into it because at the time I felt like, oh my God, I can't commit. I can't throw myself into this. Why can't I? Come on, let me loosen up. Who gives a crap what people think? Um, 
the my my regrets with um with that and looking back and not being because I didn't know where I was and I'm I'm actually a good student because I listened to everything the coach would say I'd push them and say no you're not you're not being fair on me you've got to push me harder you've got to let me try this and Oti would always have her way and say no you're not good enough you're not doing that which would hurt as a sportsman you don't want to hear you're not good enough mm. but a couple of things where she said look you're not going to get this in time so we'll we'll put um, we'll substitute it. Um, and then whatever you substitute, when you actually do the dance, um, they pick that out and you go, I could have done that, but she didn't let me do it. They, they were the, I mean, we'd fall out epically during the week because I'd say, no, you've got to let me try this. You, she'd go, no, you're not good enough. You're not going to be moving on. And we'd really fight like cat and dog. Um, but my only regret looking back is that it's easy to say now because she's my mate. And at the time, she was just my coach. But now if she told me to do something, I'd go, shut up, I'm better than that, come on. And she'd probably say, yeah. But at the time, it's her reputation as well. So she's going, no. Um, but oh, we had a hoot. But yeah, it, honestly, frightening, frightening. You nailed the floss. But, I mean, the one thing is that I found out, this is the most bizarre thing I found out, I'm really good at having eyeliner put on me. I didn't flinch. Apparently, a lot of people flinch really badly. It was absolutely par for the course for me. Didn't even flinch. So there you go. Don't Take what you want. That was the guy liner, guy liner, and greatest <laughs> one go hand in hand. What a tango that was! What a tango! If you've not seen it, get on YouTube or a similar device and watch Graham Swan's tango. Unbelievable! Definite forty, marked horrifically low. <laughs> I believe you just referred to yourself in the third person. One straight. The ground stop picked the ball up on the wing and, and you know he whipped it in and now on the back post was Alan Shearer and knocked it in. So yeah, really happy with that. You're a Newcastle fan, aren't you? How are the lads? I am. That's Why the best thing about this season. I was starting to worry that you know we might get sucked into the relegation battle, but near bother. Seasons canned, unlucky Liverpool, how are Newcastle? We live How in the must Liverpool be feeling? My god, what have they gotta to do to get this title? You know what? I actually feel for it. I know there's a lot of people are laughing and everything, uh, but I adore Jurgen Klopp. Yes, so do I. Because of everything he's done. He's one of these guys who's come in. He's not an excuse, man. He comes in and he's, and he's made uh, like a lot of the Liverpool players at first. Remember, they lost the game and it wasn't very long into his managerial tenure there. And he made the whole team go out and in that really European way. Like applaud the the fans and like do that. Everyone hold their hands in the line and sort of say thank you to the fans, which I know from being in the sports dressing room and speaking to my mates who played professional football would have been, you know, the second they're finishing, oh my God, I can't believe we have to do that. That was so embarrassing. But he's, he did that. He's connected with the crowd. Hang on, I'm declining a phone call here. <laughs> but he's connected with the crowd um, and, and with the community in a way that saying, look, it is more than just a sports team. You do have to connect with your team. So they played, you know, after the days when they won everything, they've played terrible football for a long time and been sort of a sleeping giant. He's come back, not only got them connecting with the community and being honest in the dressing room, but playing brilliant football as well. To being genuinely one of the best teams in Europe. And I don't care how much money you have to spend. That's part of football. But he is brilliant. His press conferences are amazing. His press conference about coronavirus, when he just said, why does it matter what I think? Ask the medical professionals. What I think is, is a moot point. Do whatever they say. I said, thank God for that. If only politicians were doing the same as Jurgen Klopp. So, yeah, I feel for him. They'll win the league next year anyway, I think. Um, but, yeah, 
it is a shame for them because they deserve to win it, let's face it. But, you know, it's that old schadenfreude thing, sort of laughing at someone else's misfortune. Very English again, very English. But that's football for you. I don't support Liverpool, but I, I do feel absolutely gutted for them. Um, one thing that any cricket fan, or in fact any sports fan should do, is watch The Edge. That's, um, you know, everyone's asking yes. for recommendations at the moment um, to fill their time. Uh, they, it, it dealt a lot, particularly in the latter stages of the, at the end of the documentary, with mental health. That You seem yeah. a pretty robust individual in terms of dealing with um, the pressures of, of tour life. But just how bad can it get? And are the right systems and support networks now in place for helping current players? Well, I think they're getting better. Um, one thing I'll say, I mean, I watched that film and I loved it. That's, imagine being a kid, imagine yourself one day being a part of an England team and winning the Ashes and d d living your dream and then getting to sit down and watch it on the screen and you're a part of it. That was, for me, a massive sort of you know, pinch me moment. But yeah, it did focus a lot on the mental health side. I'll say at the time that that was made, and I think recently, because mental health is not a taboo anymore, it's not an embarrassing subject to be like, hidden, it's getting a lot better. But I said at the time that I'm still shocked by how little regard is, is, is spent towards not just mental health, but the mental side of being a, an elite sportsman. And like I said earlier, that I completely, 100% think that it's all in the mind. Test cricket is all in the brain. Anyone who gets to that standard is an incredible player in their own right, in their own, in their own field. But then the questions and the doubts and the nagging sort of, you know, you can't do this, you can't do this, that little man on your left shoulder, he's there for everybody. And yet we had... On that tour where Jonathan Trott had his breakdown and everything, our psychologist, we knew that there were issues with him from the year before. He came out on the got in coach bowling coach, fielding coach, doctor, physio, um, kit man, 16 players. We've got a whole entourage of players, but the psychologist was seen like, not important enough to send home before the biggest match of people's careers. And I just, I find that incredible. I think the person who unearths, what Jurgen Klopp has done at Liverpool is made everyone believe that they're the best team. And he might not have done it by sitting them down and doing the hypnotist, whatever, but people who are full of positivity and find ways to get the best out of their squad will get the results. So I think sport in the whole, the ones who really focus on just putting everything in place to players feel like, yes, we, we're going to do this. Clive Woodward in 2003. He was pilloried later on, but at the time his whole thing was that extra 1%, like getting people out of the squad who he saw as sappers, sapping energy, because he didn't want to do a team meeting that might be a bit left field. And then as you're walking out the room, one guy says, what a load of bullshit that was. So you don't need them within a team. Little things like that, getting everyone. So everything is, so your brain becomes like a sponge where you think, Yes, I see the benefit in this. I see the good in this. I see the good in that. If you get someone or a team of people who are, who are feeding that positive energy into players, I would say that's better than a team of coaches any day of the week at the top level. Brilliant. Swanee, thank you so much for your time. You're probably getting a bit hungry now. It's lunchtime. You've got to go and feed the kids. Now, I've eaten, my lunch was an hour and a half ago. I'm up at the crack of dawn with three children. My, if I get to quarter to 11 a.m. and I've not had my lunch, something has gone seriously 
be wrong. So I'm way ahead of you. I'm thinking about tea already. And you can tell how northern we both are because we have lunch and tea. We don't. We have dinner and tea. We don't have dinner and supper. But you probably do know because you're a West Londoner. But uh, I, I, I know where you come from now. <laughs> Swanee, it's so <laughs> good to see you. So good to talk to you. Stay safe. Thank you, Swanee. I just loved his description of walking out and playing for England. Gave me goosebumps. It's amazing, wasn't it? He's a good storyteller. Great at describing exactly what's going through his heart and mind. Yeah, love that. I loved our chat. Okay, we've got loads more guests on the way, including Johnny Bairstow, Nick Hamilton, Kate Thornton, and the NHS's newest recruit, would you believe it, is the rugby legend, Jamie Roberts. He's got a medical degree, and he's putting his time to great use. Now he can't play the sport down in South Africa for the foreseeable future. He's working with the NHS in Cardiff. Hear what he's got to say on In The Pink very soon. But until then, thanks guys for your company. Stay home, stay healthy, stay connected. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 